0: Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's about 11 o'clock, so um, we'll get started. Welcome to 11th hour. This is our final week, which is a little bit sad. Um, A reminder, um, as always, please turn off or silence cell phones if you have one with you. And if there are questions at the end, I'll bring um, a microphone around so we can all hear each other and capture your wonderful questions. In my first semester at the Writers' Workshop, I took a seminar called Research Rapture, where we read several books by authors who were perhaps a bit too enthusiastic about their research. One was called The Pencil, and it was 400 pages long. There is apparently much to know about The Pencil. I never made it through to the end. But as Lauren Haldeman will discuss, research often provides the electricity and perhaps equally important, the creative credibility for a writing. Lauren is the author of the poetry collection, Calenday, a finalist for the 2014 Julie Suk Award. Her work has appeared in the Rumpus, Fence, Propeller, and Tupelo Quarterly. She received an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and she was the recipient of the 2015 Sustainable Arts Foundation Award. She currently works as a web designer for the University of Iowa Writing University and the Iowa Review. Please join me in welcoming Lauren Haldeman.
1: So, for the last decade, there have been a sea change in the area of poetic forms. So, this includes the use of found poetry, research, investigative work, poetry mashups. I'm talking about fiction, too, and nonfiction. It's a huge area now called hybrid work. So, even if you're not a poet, you can use all of these techniques in your own nonfiction work and your own fiction work. So, it's surged in popularity. And publishers are publishing a lot of these books now, guys. Very good thing. Uh, there's a rise in it, especially creative nonfiction, poetry hybrids, creative nonfiction hybrids. So it's getting excitingly pervasive in the pu- publishing world. So it began many, many years ago. I think one of the first writers, so research actually has always been used in writing. But this kind of new and exciting form was started by a few writers like Ann Carson and then recently new writers, Maggie Nelson, Claudia Rankine, using this form to tell stories in a new way. Um, they, they've been highly acclaimed collections, um, and they've changed the guidelines of what constitutes a collection of poetry, a collection of nonfiction, a collection of fiction. So the main, one of the main and underlining components is the integration and fusion of research. So that includes field work, primary sources, interviews, It also includes like found text. So this is what I try to explain, um, is that the world is speaking to us, always. So anytime you're being sold something, they're using language, often in a very poetic way. Um, Anytime that you're listening to the radio, the TV, there's language happening, and all of that language, it's not just passing you by, it's usable. Usable substances, usable words, and as we'll talk later about fair use, a lot of this stuff can be taken, reworked in your own work, and made new again. So just try to walk through the world thinking, my, my sources and my subjects are not just in books. They're everywhere. They're in this sign for, you know, mashed potatoes and gravy. They're in this, they're in this uh, television ad about... Uh, you know, some sort of new medication. It's all, it's all language that's being manipulated and used. And what I like best about using that language is that you get to retake the power of it, and you get to make it yours, and then you get to re-release it into the world. So including fieldwork, primary sources, interviews, I'm, I'm adding everything else to it. Your, your existence in a, wor- a world full of words, right? So... Consider that research as well. So incorporating these found texts, references, snippets, nonfiction into a poem or a hybrid piece changes the mechanics of the work. It alters the flow in which you write and it also adds uncertainty and surprise, right? So a lot of times we go to a piece of research and we find something we didn't know before or we find a phrase we never heard before and that takes us out of our own head. It moves us up into a realm where we're starting to hit on a larger consciousness, and we're also starting to hit on a larger sphere of understanding where we're, gonna be, we're meeting with readers that we haven't yet met. It adds leverage to a poem, so it allows those emotive properties to really shine in comparison with embalasted by the research. So if I wrote a poem, and I'll, maybe I'll just use an example of how this started. Um, I was trying to write poems about playing soccer um, in Northern Virginia when I was a kid outside of the Civil War battlefields. And the poems were coming out sort of like, me, 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 oh, it was hard playing soccer, and the girls were mean to me, and, you know. And I thought, this is not working for me. Like, I that I'm caught, I'm stuck inside my own Lauren bubble and it's, and it's not working, it's just getting too echoey. And so I started adding actual Civil War research into it and what that did was it just sort of blew open my bubble, right, suddenly I was connecting to actual soldier experiences, I was connecting to parts of, uh, parts of the actual battlefield and so my ego was no longer completely in charge of my writing experience, which is awesome, It's excellent to break out of that. So I'm gonna read um, an excerpt from Citizen, which is a book by Claudia Rankine. It came out a couple years ago and I love what she's doing in it. So this uh, little section I'm gonna read is about Hurricane Katrina and the whole piece is none of her words. It's a found poem That she that she made comprised of quotes collected from CNN transcripts, right? So this isn't this is research, but it's not opening up a book in a library and using a highlighter, right? And looking at the footnote. This is a different kind of research. She's getting transcripts from a television broadcast, and then she's using it to create a story about an event. Let me find the page. And th- again, this is um, this is all usable stuff. So, the CNN transcripts she's reusing them as a poem, so it's fair use. Um, let me start with here. Have you seen their faces? Then this anesthesia. Size distancing from, oh my God, from unbelievable, from dehydration, from overheating, from no electricity, no power, no way to communicate. We are drowning here. Still in the difficulty. As if the faces in the images hold all the consequences. And the fiction of the facts assumes randomness and indeterminacy. He said, I don't know what the water wanted. It wanted to show you that no one would come. This is uh, pages and pages of this, and these are all collections of things in, from interviews that people were saying and the comment, that were commentary. And it's a different way of viewing the event, isn't it? And it holds the event in history now. It's on the page. It didn't disappear into the nightly news. So not only does the research and found text offer profound viewports into experience of multiple speakers, it does something important as a mechanism. It acts as an emotional archive. So in a world where news barely lasts a week, Rankine uses actual news reports and solidifies them into a timeless concrete exploration and critique. These voices are not forgotten, but neither are they just simply listed in a series of quotations. She internalizes them her voice is mixing and rising through them the way that she ordered them and she allows the emotional space at a certain stage in which to be a living force again so it but it also gives the readers expansive trust in a type of group quorum right it's not just the it's not just the author speaking anymore she's not the sole writer she's not working inside of her own of just her experience so it explodes with personal and historical perspective, and this framework allows the emotive powers of those moments to contain, like, that evocative grounding in fact. You can also sense that she is losing control for a moment, right? That surprise nature. Um, She's using her individual voice, but she's also giving way to research to incorporate a new voice one from the past, one that was silenced, one that was lost, amplifying this voice in parallel with her own experience. So this is something that you can do with any research that you find, right? So um, let's say you're researching a certain person who was a scientist um, and the work was sort of forgotten. You as an author can be the person to bring that work back into the light, adding your own perspective on it, right? circling through their words, adding in your own perspective of, of how you've experienced it, and so that you're solidifying it on the page again. I love that part of it. It's a recycling, but it's also like a respectful uh, place for uh, a rebirth, in a way, of old ideas. The, and your own story will become flexible, liquid. It begins to correlate with other people's stories, there's a meshing of consciousness. It's an opening into untapped discoveries, understandings of consciousness through the simple pairing of source material and experiential material put side by side. So I wanted to talk a little bit about my own work, how I got into using research and hybrid work a lot. Um, I Again, like I, like I mentioned before, I was working on a book, and I needed some scaffolding. So, a lot of what was coming out on the page I felt was just a little too personal, a little too weak, um, a little too whiny, maybe. (laughs) And so I thought, I need something more. I need something solid. I need a ballast here. Uh, What I did not expect is that the research would open doors into an entirely different world of personal stories. Uh, It created like a time portal. Um, I feel like I entered into a larger consciousness and was bringing voices down into the page. Um, And I'll I'll discuss that in a little bit, but not only did it ballast the work, but it also led me in so many exciting and new directions. So what I was working on was called Team Photograph. Um, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., and where I grew up, I was surrounded by Civil War battlefields. Um, the one battlefield that was the closest to my house was uh, called Manassas, or Bull Run Battlefield. It's the place where the first uh, battle of the Civil War took place. Um, the first battle of Bull Run, and then the second battle of Bull Run, or Manassas, depending on which side was naming that battle. Um, I was playing f- <laughs> football, so yeah, I wrote this <laughs> for where people call it football. I was playing soccer, semi-professionally, in this in this environment, right? So a lot of the fields we were playing on were directly next to Civil War battlefields. So much so that in the mornings when we would arrive, they often had the girls walk the fields to make sure that there were no uh, tiny objects that we could hurt ourselves on because at one point some girl had fallen and actually hurt her knee on a bullet shell, right? So there's still fragments all over this area. Uh, What we think of as a battlefield, right? There were skirmishes all around the battlefields as well. So another thing that was happening to me when I was a child was uh, visions. It's called hypnagogia. And I would wake up, it still happens, I would wake up from sleep in my room and I would see people there. Sometimes I would see one person a group of people, they would interact with me, talk with me, and then I would fully wake, and they would disappear. Has anyone had this happen to them? Yeah? Oh, good, two people? Man, most of the time, it's just nobody. I feel very alone. But it's called hypnagogy. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, it's a sci- there's scientific studies as to why it happens, but a lot of what I'm exploring is... Uh, what was going on with my experience at that time in that area. Um, The house that I grew up in, in Virginia, was built right outside of an area where Clara Barton established the first Red Cross. So a lot of the soldiers were coming from the fields to injured to be taken care of in this area. And as you know, I mean, from the reports, there were a lot of um, casualties and so the fields around in this area were oftentimes filled with dead and wounded soldiers. Um, this, was the, this was the start, right? So I had these four things. I was trying to figure out what to do with them. Um, uh, about two, two years ago, I ran into some Whitman web research here at the University of Iowa and found notebooks and notebooks of his writing about his time as a nurse in, on the Civil War battlefields. And just reading them were haunting to me, and were very, they just, my skin prickled up, right? He's talking about houses being full of wounded soldiers, he's talking about churches being full of wounded serv- soldiers, and the places he's mentioning are places that are like a mile away from my house that I knew, you know, that on Ox Road in Virginia, on, on Lee Highway, and I am suddenly aware of another layer of experience happening over my own, right? So this is the beginning of the research. I thought, I need to look into these. The more and more I read about these, and the more and more I, I, I listened to the language of Whitman and started bringing it into my own language, the more I, needed, I realized I needed to get even more factual into this, this actual battle because everything was po- everything started pointing back to this battle, right? The first battle of Bull Run and it started pulling back pointing back to the battlefield itself where e- less than a mile away I was playing soccer. So I decided to go and do some field work, field research at Bull Run Battlefield. In the next couple of slides I'll show you what I found. Um But all during this time, I was also running into a conflict, right? How can I talk about the Civil War? How can I talk about my experience as a child? How can I talk about things without touching on race and without touching on the idea of slavery? And I felt stumped, stopped. As a white writer, I felt like I didn't really have the right to go towards it. Um, I didn't know how to approach it. I felt very, very uncomfortable about the entire subject. And this is where research really, really helped me. So it stalled out my project for about a year. I thought, I can't write about this. If I'm going to be using these Civil War documents but not mentioning anything about slavery, and even anything about the state of affairs in America today, then I'm not being true to the subject. And I'm sort of relying on my own privilege to not have to talk about it, right? So... Research really helped me out of this hole. It was an uncomfortable subject. It didn't feel good to think about. And research helped me get closer to it, learn a lot more about it, and to sort of explore my, my place as a writer in this subject. So when I got to the Bull Run battlefield, I walked the grounds and said, has anyone ever been to Bull Run, Manassas? Yes, you have, a you know, few people. So you know that, so there's a visitor center, and then there's a uh, fields and fields. Uh, the, you can see the Blue Ridge Mountain in the, in the distance. It's gorgeous, actually. Uh, there's a main field called Henry Hill where most of the fighting occurred, but there's also a field in the distance called Matthews Hill where the first uh, Union soldiers came over, and there's a couple of other battlefields around it. Um, the main tour takes place on Henry Hill, you go past the Henry House. You go past Ricketts Battery. Uh, you take a turn. You go past where the Confederate Army had uh, soldiers in the woods, um, and then you come back around. Statue of Robert E. Lee, uh, and then the Visitor Center. Um, what I walked that field several times before I noticed the James Robinson House, and it doesn't look like. Is that me? Oh, it's the doors. It doesn't look like this, right? So this is what it looks like. Um, so it's not noticeable at first. You're walking around. You're reading all of the plaques. And you don't really see this site. Uh, there's, here's, the, uh, here's the plaque for the site, so you can see it's in the background, and here's a plaque I I took. The plaques are very good for research as well. But you can see that right right now there's nothing there. But I I was drawn back and back, over and over to this spot. And the more I read about this family that isn't mentioned very often in the history of Bull Run, um, the more I was sort of drawn into this story, drawn into this knowledge, Uh, James Robinson was a free black man. He lived on this land. He owned acres and acres of land. He was, I think, the fifth richest person in Prince William County at the time. Um, His wife, when he married his wife, she was a slave. And so because of the law at the time, all of his children were born as slaves. Um, So your actual status as a free person or slave, is passed down through the mother, which I didn't realize. He worked his whole life to purchase back his children. He had six children. He was able to purchase the freedom of four of those children. The two oldest sons he was unable to purchase. They were both sold down to Louisiana at the beginning of the war, and only one of them was able to be contacted and found after the war. So just that alone just hit me. It hit me as a mom. It hit me as a human being. Uh, I did not know any of these facts before. I I couldn't believe that this was the case. Picturing trying to purchase my own daughter's freedom just sort of destroyed me inside. Um, So I decided to focus in on this house. The more that I learned about it, the more it became a living story inside of my own story. So the history of the battlefield in this house's place also is, per- is pertinent. Um, the, the battle, of course, uh, uh, took place uh, here. The house was here. It survived the battle. So many of the other houses were Blown up, cannons fired through them. Um, the Henry House, the ca- cannons were fired through them, killing the inhabitants inside. Uh, it's, so this, this house survived the war. So why isn't it there anymore? Um, I did some more research into it. In 1991, an arsonist burned this house down. So there's another layer to a story. This battlefield, so many ghosts, so many, so much history... And then in 1991, after surviving two major battles of the Civil War, someone walked on a federal property and burned down uh, a house on federal property. Um, of course, in all the papers, they say that, uh, that it may have been racially motivated. I'm pretty sure it was racially motivated.
0: Okay? <laughs> so
1: this is suddenly... All of these facts I'm holding right right here and now. And what do I do with them? How do I, add my, I don't want to add my voice to them necessarily. I'm not even sure what, how to handle it. So what I, what I decided to do was use a technique called found poetry, where I just took language. I took language that had been forgotten, walked past, not seen, and I put it on the page in poetic form. I didn't add my voice to it. I didn't know how to add my voice to it but I wanted it to be seen. And I wanted the story to be amplified. I wanted some active listening to take place. So this really helped with some difficult questions. My role as a white writer, dealing with this large subject I had no idea to deal with, Um, what was being asked, active listening, amplification of facts, and research helped me with all of that. Um, So what, what I... What I developed this talk to sort of explore was how to take your own personal experience, explode it out using research, and then bring what you find back into artistic representation. So right now I wanted to go and just show a couple of examples of ways to do this, right? So once you've done the research. So the research is the first part. My experience with the word research before I did this project was that research equals boring, right? I mean, I picture research as being opening a textbook and highlighting pages. But after this project, I realized it's it's extremely exciting, especially if you have a focus and idea of what you want to find. Because research can help that subject find you, right? So there's a lot of magical stuff that can happen. I would suggest starting with a subject. It could be as broad as I started with the Civil War and then slowly came down and ended up at this single house on a field, you know, in Northern Virginia. But having a little bit of focus and then finding those texts and just starting to explore and let those texts lead you is a great way to start. Um, there's a couple exercises I used in my own uh, project. One was called Erasure, one was Primary Source Writing, and one was Field Research. So I'm just going to go through a couple ideas on those. So Erasure. Has anyone done Erasure before? I know, yeah, yes. Uh, Erasure is the process of taking um, a set of texts and then taking out a lot of the lines blacking out a lot of the lines to create your own piece from it. And it feels like you're doing something wrong at first,
0: <laughs> right? Because we're all taught
1: not to write in library books. We're all taught not to destroy textbooks. So this is, a pro- this is a thing where you need to sort of let go of what you were taught and realize that, oh, I can use this. I can use this text. So I'm going to show you a couple of uh, examples. Now, uh, this guy, Austin, calls them blackout poems. I like that, too. He uses, um, he uses uh, a Sharpie with the newspaper every morning, which is also a form of using research. That way you're really engaging with the world. But you can see here that he is circling words, thinking about it, and then he colors it all in. To create a new piece of work. Um, Here's some of them, what they look like. In Texas, there's nothing but Texas. Overheard on the Titanic. I mean, yes, we're sinking, but the music is exceptional. (laughs) This one's called, What is Marriage? I love this one. Marriage is two people in love standing in the same bathroom. He started making prints from them. Creativity is subtraction. I like that one, too. Let's look at a few other things. Here's a blackout poem. There's nothing like that first book. You put your guts into it and hope. Uh, Let me go back here. Go to best practices. I'll uh, just show you a few more. Here are, here are teenagers doing this. I love this. I love this using. If, do we have any teachers out there, high school teachers? Yeah. Uh, this is a great thing to do with, with teenagers, especially showing them how they can take media, language around them, news, and make it their own, uh, sort of a act, very active listening to the world. And they really like it because it's, de- it's destroying stuff. So... Here's some, the uh, teenagers are writing. I wish we carved hearts on a tree in the exact spot where we crossed paths. Re-elect my heart. I I love how, I love that these are so teenage (laughs) poems. They're so, they're all about love. Who has your back? The answer to that question is me. You make everyone else everyone else. Spend a night, help destroy the time with me. How would you like an old school deep fried love letter? So this is, a, this is exciting to do. So you can do this with text that you've sought out yourself. I actually ended up doing this with Whitman poems. It felt very wrong. <laughs> Very, very wrong. And then I asked the foremost Whitman scholar in the nation, Ed Folsom, who actually teaches here, and he said, yes, please do it. And I thought, okay, that's weird. Uh, but Whitman's in the in, uh, public domain now, so. I, and he said that, you know, among, among the uh, Whitman lovers is this sense of reuse, you know, recycling. He, Whitman was doing it himself, too. Um, but I've also done it with pages from textbooks, right? So even from these books about Bull Run, I've done it with pages from that. Um, so I love this. And let me show you one other way of doing this that's, about the, that's kind of the opposite. So this is Mary Rufel's Erasure Poem. And this is a book she found, Melody, the Story of a Child, written by someone else. And here's what she's doing with it. Poetry, what is it? It is like a crumpled white rose, but very different. It has to do with myself. So she's doing the opposite of the Sharpie, right? She's taking, uh, what is it called, whiteout? Whiteout pens. Um, and she's just creating a new book out of an old book. And this is something that you can do with, Old library books, books you find at Goodwill. I wouldn't do this with like a Marilyn Robinson book, or you know, like a recently you know Pulitzer Prize winner book. But I definitely would do it with books you find in the library. Children's books are great. Uh, recipe books are great. You can find a whole other story inside of a book. So this is this is called erasure, but it's also called humament. You see how she's working with it, right? Very stark. Let me show you one other example of this. The guy who actually invented this, Tom Phillips, um, and what he was doing was he found a document called a human document. It was a book that I think he just discovered in a pile of giveaway books. And you can swatch what he's doing here. All right. So he's creating his own art from the pages and a whole new story. He did this with, an, with this entire book and has continued to do it with other books that he's found, found. If you have time today or this week, while you're in class, the Iowa City Public Library has a small book sh- shop upstairs called the what is it called? The book." Uh, Just ask them, they're librarians, they know. So um, where they sell old library books, books that maybe have a coffee spill on them or a little bit of breakage or just they got new versions of them. They're super cheap and you can do this with them, okay? It's, and I know it seems scary at first, but it's so fun, it's so fun. And you're you're gonna be surprised. You're gonna be surprised and you're gonna find all sorts of new texts in there. This is a great thing to do when you're stuck too with writing. So that's like erasure um, examples. Primary source writing. Um, So I'll go through this real fast. I think I already talked a little bit about it. Here's one of uh, the notebook pages from Whitman's notebook from the Civil War. Uh, He was taking notes for his own poetry, but he was also just taking notes, lists of soldiers, uh, what they were asking for, whorehound candy, a newspaper, a book. There's lists and lists of these guys' names, their regiment, they're in the hospital recovering or trying to recover from these wounds, and they're just asking for heartbreaking stuff to me. Whorehound candy was like, I almost started crying when I read that. But this is one of his just journals of what it was like being a nurse. So you can see on the top, he says, seen in the woods on the peninsula. You can see after the battle, Oaks Church. This is a church near where I grew up. This is where I started getting really creeped out. Um, the scene between, and then so what, so this is hard to read, but uh, Ed Folsom and a whole crew down at the Whitman Archive have transposed uh, all of these texts. So what I found was the pages plus the texts, and I just <coughs> decided, and this, this phrase haunted me from the start, seen in the woods on. I don't know what about it, but it had a vibration to me, seen in the woods on, seen in the woods on. So I started writing down memories, started writing down free association, seen in the woods on, seen in the woods on, seen in the woods on. And it made it into this manuscript. It became its own living thing, but I'm using primary source writing. So in the end, I'm going to definitely cite, give a citation to this, this these texts, where to find them online. But, it became a new piece of art and then field research right so go out go find the museum that has your subject matter in it go to the location and there's a couple things to do here that you can do here is one uh, read all the plaques so as I was talking in my weekend workshop the language on museum plaques is so great it's so weird because it's oftentimes like it's very present and directional. So it'll be like, to your left, you'll see the tree where the horses, you know, and you're like, to your left. Like, that's a great phrase to put down on a piece of paper, right? Because suddenly you're not just reading the page, you're in like an environment where there is a left. And also, it refers to objects. It like gives objects this like special meaning. It'll be, it'll say something like, this knife you see before you. It's like, whoa, <laughs> what about that knife? Tell me about it. Weird. You know, It's like, or, you know, there'll be, I found a piece of flag that had, like still had blood stains on it, and it, and it said, this, this fragment of a flag you see before you. And I just thought, man, that's like a poem in itself, this fragment of a flag you see before you. So use the language at the museum. Fair use. No, I mean, it's... It's there for you to use, to rewrite, to reincorporate. Um, I started making lists of just objects that they had in museums, and the lists themselves spread out into other things. There's a thing called a time fuse, which is a, there's a trigger fuse and a time fuse. These are two types of bombs. One goes off. This was during the Civil War. One goes off uh, when it hits something, and one goes off based on a timer. They actually were able to do that. But I thought, time fuse, what a word. I mean, it, Like, think about the idea of fusing different times together, which is basically what I was doing. I was in the present moment trying to fuse with this, this time period 150 years ago. Um, so go and find the language there. And then the other thing to do is that when you're at the location, just sit down and listen. Try to see if you intuit some, a voice, you know, if, someone, if something starts talking to you, if the pine trees... I, I was sitting in the woods right behind all, where they have lined up all of the cannons that were being used on this terrible field. The field was a scene of confusion, was one of the lovely quotes um, that I got off of a plaque. And I was sitting in the pine trees with my notebook, just, to, just writing. And the sound of the trees themselves, I thought, this is the same sound that these soldiers heard. The same sound, 150 years ago. And I was trying to smell the smells. This is very much the same smells, but what other smells could, were added to this scene that I'm not smelling, right? Coffee, the, the stink of, of people around you who haven't showered and haven't shaved, and the haversack, the wool haversack uniforms. So go to location, find location. Last thing I'm gonna talk about, fair use, right? I'm not a lawyer. So don't use my presentation as the means to, uh, to in in court. Definitely talk with editors, talk with other publishers. But this is what I did find. Um, This is part of a very long uh, article that was written by a group of writers that came together on this very subject. How do we handle hybrid poetry? How do we handle using works um, in a new way? And this is one of the major paragraphs that I found was, does the unlicensed work transform the material taken from the copyrighted work and use it for a different purpose? Or does it just repeat the same purpose? So what I'm talking about is a different purpose, right? You're making your own writing by using this material, right? You're not taking a paragraph and saying, or a Raymond Carver story and putting in a book and being like, now it's mine. It's found poetry. Lauren Haldeman said I could do it. This is where she lives. It's like, no, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you where I live. And uh, (laughs) so what, I mean, what we're talking about doing is exactly that, right? And then also, was the material taken in appropriate and kind and amount, right? So we're using the right amount of poetry. Again, entire Raymond Carver story, no, boo. But, you know, <laughs> parts of paragraphs of text from like, from, uh, Donnybrook about the first battle of Bull Run or from the actual plaques. Yes. Very good. If the answer to these two questions are yes, a court is likely to find a use fair. Because that is true, such a use is also less likely to be challenged than other types of uses. So... One thing to keep in mind, right? Definitely keep in mind. Check with people when you're doing this. Check with publishers. You can always utilize if a piece gets picked up by a journal or if, you're, if a book gets picked up, you can always say, listen, there's parts of this. I need some help. Make, let's just make sure that this is clean. But I like this. It's what I stick by when I'm working with things. And I'll leave you with that.